you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to the end, following the reading of scripture, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Uh, Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. As we've been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, we're coming toward the end of that middle section on uh, the redemption that provides uh, deliverance from our sin and misery. And here are these questions on how we receive that redemption, how we receive that those blessings. And last week we considered the questions on the sacraments. God in his great goodness and mercy has given to us these visible pictures of the work of Jesus Christ. We are physical beings. Uh, We do have that spiritual um, part of us uh, that um, is a very important thing, but we're physical beings and God in his mercy has given us these physical symbols of the work of Christ, particularly baptism in the Lord's Supper. So we looked at last week at how God has given us these sacraments to confirm and affirm, assure us of the truth of the spiritual realities of which they represent. And then today we'll consider baptism and next week the Lord's Supper as uh, those two sacraments God has given to us. Now, this is a topic of which there is a lot of debate. Even among us here, there are uh, differences of opinion. Um, Hopefully it's a cordial debate, but it's a debate nonetheless. We feel, people feel very strongly about this. Maybe there's only two things which people, Christian people, argue more about. Predestination and prophecy. But, the, but baptism is up there pretty high uh, in terms of disagreement uh, and uh, discussion about that. But I think, as we go through these questions, I think except for question 74, I think we can find a great deal of uh, unity and commonality in some of the, the points made earlier, and I hope that we will gain that. I read for you 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And that's a passage which verses in it are misunderstood and misrepresented. 
But the, the main points I wanted to, you to get as you thought, think about that passage uh, are two things. There's a comparison that Peter's making between the flood and our baptism. He's making the, the direct connection. And just as water, the water of the flood, washed over the earth to, to, uh, to wash away some of the impurities, the filthiness of the sin of mankind that had grown to a high level at that time. So our bodies are washed with water. And the picture of that water is the cleansing away of the filth. Our baptism pictures the washing away of our sin and the cleansing of the iniquity that is in us. A second element in that passage is also to think about the idea of rescue. Uh, eight souls were, were rescued from the judgment of God in the flood because they were in the ark. You and I can escape the judgment, the final judgment of Almighty God, the just judgment of Almighty God, if we are in Christ. And we too experience the rescue of God uh, through Christ just as Noah and his family experienced the rescue of God through the judgment by being in the ark. And baptism as that water uh, is a picture of the cleansing and the washing that comes over to us because of the blood of Christ. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. That's such a significant thing. Something I'm pretty adamant about, uh, even for our friends who believe that baptism should only occur after a profession of faith, baptism can never, must never be about anything we do. It must not be about our profession. It must not be about our action. It has to be completely focused on the work of Christ. It's focused on what Jesus did. Because our profession can waver, sometimes even fail. But the work of Christ will never fail. And if our hope is in our deeds or our actions, then we ultimately will not have the confidence and hope of faith. But if our confidence, if our view, if our eyesight is directed to Christ, you see, then we have encouragement, then we have a hope that will never weary, waver, that will never fail. And that's what baptism is helpful, hopefully a helpful picture for us. So as, as we think about from the questions and answers, what is the significance of baptism? It's a confirmation of your hope in Christ. <clears throat> How is it signified in, unto you that in the holy baptism that you have a part in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding to it the promise that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water by which the filthiness of the body is commonly taken away. See, the sacraments are given to us as a 
as, a, as an uh, uh, encouragement, as an affirmation of the truth of the spiritual realities which they represent. They're a, a visible picture of an invisible truth. And uh, the picture of this truth is that we are washed and as certainly as we see, touch, or in this case, not taste, um, smell and hear the word of God preached about these things. That's how sure we can be of the work of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. It's give, to give us that encouragement to strengthen us in our faith. Uh, turn please to Hebrews ten twenty two, where the writer here connects the two things together. He, he connects the inward spiritual reality that takes place by the work of the Spirit and the outward sign of that. So in Hebrews 10, 22, he says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, that's the inward work, and having our bodies washed with pure water, that's the outward sign. So he puts together in one sentence the inward work of the Spirit with the outward sign of our baptism. Our bodies in baptism are washed externally, but it's a picture of what happens in, internally by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what your baptism means for you. If you've been baptized, it's a picture of the work of God in your heart and in your life. And that's your hope. That's your strength. Uh, what does your baptism mean for you? Question 70 essentially asks us, what is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? There are two things. One I've already been talking about, but it's to re receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross. And then also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ that we may more and more die into sin and lead holy and blameable lives. So the first thing again is what does your baptism mean for you? If you've been baptized, I don't care when or how, what does your baptism mean for you? Your baptism is a reminder of the work of Jesus Christ that by faith you have received uh, from the Lord. It's a sign of that cleansing. Uh, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's a passage where God is talking about the new covenant and what he will do. Uh, for his people and how he will bless them. And it's this cleansing, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, I'm not talking about the mode of baptism today. I might say indirectly that this passage in the previous one I mentioned at least 
acknowledges that sprinkling is a valid mode, though we accept um, immersion, sprinkling, or pouring as valid modes of baptism. But at any rate, here the point is, God's going to sprinkle clean water on us and purify us from, from sin. And that's the work of God through Christ and because of his work. Uh, in Zechariah, he talks about on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So what does your baptism mean for you? It means uh, that God, by his grace, cleanses you from sin because of the work of Christ. But the second thing that it does for you that's very important, and we emphasize, emphasize this from time to time, is that it calls you to obedience. You see, your baptism isn't something that happened once upon a time and now has nothing more to say to you. If you have been baptized every day, your baptism calls you to holiness because you've been marked out by God. Uh, You've been called to be his. So turn back to 1 Peter again. Here we're going to read a portion of chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. We read 1 Peter 3, a portion of it that talks about baptism. Now, what happens as a result of baptism in 1 Peter 4, 1? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Your baptism every single day calls you to that. To love one another, to serve one another, to walk in holiness, to glorify God. So it's not a meaningless ritual that happened sometime in your past. It's a very significant sign of what God has done for you. And it's a significant call to you to obedience. Uh, So it's very, very important for us. 
Uh, Does baptism save you? That's essentially question 72. No, it's Christ who saves you. Baptism as a wonderful picture of that saving work to be for your encouragement and your help. In question 73, basically a repetition of the encouragement and affirmation uh, we have. And so let me just read you that question and answer one more time. Why then does the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way to teach us that as the body is cleaned by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. And to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. So we again have the encouragement, the assurance, the confirmation of our what the sign means for us. And uh, we can sin against the sign, of course, and uh, perhaps bring judgment down ourselves. But it's meant to be an encouragement for you and I as we live, you and me, as we live every day uh, for the Lord. So then we come. So hopefully we're all together at this point. Uh, we're fully unified, are we not? Up to this point, I have, you're all very happy. But now I'm going to make some of you mad. So we're going to go to infant baptism. But it's important. It's part of our uh, convictions. And I won't read the question and answer about that, but you see it there, question number 74. And I, I know, I don't have any illusion that I might be convincing to you, but this is my goal. My goal is that all of you appreciate and understand that we don't baptize our infants out of uh, sentimentality and certainly not out of superstition. But we baptize our infants because we believe God has told us to do that. But because we believe that they as uh, children of believers are heirs of the covenant and as as such have a right to the sign of the covenant upon them. Uh, baptism doesn't save you, but we believe God wants the mark of the covenant, like circumcision, to be placed on our children and setting them apart <clears throat> to be to be God's own. Uh, but what I do want to do as I'm having us think about that is uh, one of the things I, I really want to try to accomplish in the next few minutes is to help you appreciate the unity of the Bible and the continuity of the message of the Bible from the beginning to the very end. And so I'm going to take you to a number of different scriptures, beginning in Genesis to Revelation. And uh, my, my hope is that you all would begin to appreciate and understand, maybe in a fresh way, uh, the the wonder and the unity of your Bible so that as you read it, you see the story of God being carried out from beginning to end. It has an implication for baptism, but primarily for you to see the unity of the scriptures. So let's begin with Genesis 3.15. And you can either just listen as I read them or you can follow along. But in Genesis 3.15, <clears throat> we have the announcement of the uh, inauguration of the covenant of grace. God had made a covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And they broke that covenant. And God is going to 
inaugurate and in the covenant of grace by which he will rescue mankind from the clutches of the evil one. And that begins here and will continue to the final day when Jesus comes again. And so in Genesis 3.15, we have this statement, and, I, and he's God speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. <clears throat> there are three key covenantal principles that are in that verse. The first is the antithesis. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. The people of God are to be different. The people of God are to honor God. And the hatred that had come from where it should have been between man and and God, God says, I'm going to put it back where it should be between you and the serpent. The people of God are marked out. They're to belong to God. They're to follow God uh, in, in a very serious way of obedience. The second covenantal idea is the generational continuity. I'm going to put this between your descendants and her descendants. There's going to be an ongoing uh, connection in the generations to come of the godly line of Eve and the ungodly line of Satan. And so the rest of the scriptures is going to unfold that uh, following out that generational continuity. The third is the Messiah. One of the sons of the woman is going to come and deal a death blow to the serpent. Now, I'm not going to develop that in the verses we're going to read, but the, the concept of the son and the coming son is so very central and significant throughout Scripture. From the naming of Cain to the naming of Noah, to the coming of Isaac, to even Jacob being the the chosen one of those, to the line of Judah, the scepter will stay in the line of Judah, to the one who who belongs to will come. You have ultimately the, the son of David who will rule on the throne. All of those things and the passion for the coming son are woven throughout all of the, the scriptures. It's a, a central point. It's a focal point. Uh, turn next to Genesis 17, 7. Genesis 17, 7. Here God is spelling out the covenant with Abraham. And in verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So you see there the generational uh, continuity. It's going to continue from generation to generation. But he adds one more covenant element that's so significant. And it's this phrase, to be your God and the God of your descendants. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God will continually remind his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. So those four elements, uh, the antithesis, the generational continuity, the Messiah, and this core covenant principle, that I will be your God and you will be my people. So let me take you a little further. Turn to Exodus 
chapter 6, verse 7. Exodus 6, verse 7. It says, I, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. That kernel, core, covenant <clears throat> principle, I will be your God. Staying in Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. This is part of the... Um, Ten Commandments, the second commandment in particular. Second, Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's generational continuity that's going to continue for generations. The, the judgment will be passed down. The righteousness will be passed down. There's a generational connection that's part of that. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 5 when the law is given again. But here I want to take you, next I want to take you to Deuteronomy 30. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. where the people are challenged. Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Again, there's a generational connection that's a part of this. Uh, turn to now, jumping quite a bit ahead, to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 14. Psalm 115, 14. Here's a benediction. May the Lord make you increase, both you and your children. There's a generational connection. Uh, turn, let's go to the prophets. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 23. Jeremiah seven twenty-three. He says, but I gave them this command, obey me. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you that it may go well with you. Here we're seeing the antithesis. They're to be different. And God promises I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, turn to Jeremiah thirty twenty-two. <clears throat> Here it's the promises of the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 22. So you will be my people and I will be your God. So we have that continuing on through that core promise. 
Now, uh, one more in the Old Testament. Go to Ezekiel 36, 28. It's uh, right after what we previously read from Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 28. says, you will live in the land I gave your forefathers. This is after talking about washing them and in cleansing them, which we read earlier, you will live in the land I gave your forefathers. <clears throat> you will be my people and I will be your God. That, that thread is all through. Now let's move to the New Testament. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. <clears throat> Matthew nineteen fourteen. This is the context where parents were bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed and the disciples were rebuking them and in four, verse 14 is Jesus' response. There are two words for children, young children in the, uh, in the New Testament. <clears throat> One is the word paideia, which is this in this particular verse. And it's a more general word for, for child. It doesn't specify the age. It could be any Age, of course, before teenagers, before young people, because there's a <clears throat> another word for young people, young men, young women. So children is just kind of any age, um, let's say under 10. It's not doesn't specify that this word could be referred to the really young ones, as the parallel passage will tell us. But just that's the word. Jesus answers. Jesus said, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's the NIV. It's not really the best translation. <clears throat> there are passages where Jesus says you need to become like little children. And he uses them as a comparison. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying you need to become like little children. He's saying to these children, about these children, let them come to me, <clears throat> because to these belong the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying it there. it's like these. He's saying to these children belongs the kingdom of heaven. Uh, turn to the parallel passage in Luke 18, Luke 18, verse 15. The reason I mentioned the two different words for little ones is because this is specifically the word for babies. It's the same context. People were, verse 15 tells us, people were also bringing babies. So this is this would be a, a child in, in infinite arms. They were bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked him in his response, though Jesus responds by saying children more generally. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to these belongs the kingdom of God. Now, not everyone would accept what we're saying. I'm saying there's a generational connection in this. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 39. Acts 2, verse 39. Part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> and uh, 239 says, the promise is for you and your children 
for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We would see a generational commitment. One more passage and then we're done, um, which you'll be glad. It's Revelation 21. So I said I was going to take you from Genesis to Revelation. Here we're going to get to Revelation. And my main objective for you is so that you can understand and see um, the covenant plan of God begins in the garden and it continues to the end. Everything in between is part of it. In Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the Holy Spirit city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The promise from the beginning is I will be your God and you will be my people. And the, the declaration at the end, at the very end of all things, is I will be your God and you will be my people now forevermore. In the holiness and the happiness of eternal glory. Hopefully you gained at least some reflection of the unity of the scriptures. Whether you agree on all the points I'm making is not, not really it. It's, do you see the fullness and richness of your Bible? Wherever you read, you're seeing the covenant plan of God being carried out. And the fullness of all that God is doing. Let's come back to our topic for this morning. So reflect on your baptism. On the meaning of it for you, the fact that it presents to you the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and reflect on the fact that your baptism calls you to faith and obedience, that you might live in that uh, holy life that God has ordained for you. And may you find help and hope in this sacrament as an encouragement to your faith. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the richness of your love, and we thank you for giving us your kindness and mercy. And we pray, O oh Father, that you would um, strengthen us in our faith, uh, challenge us in our walk with you, that we might honor you and glorify you in all that we do, and that this sacrament would be a reminder and a help to us in the confidence of faith that we have Uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, O Father, for you to be glorified in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.